You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad you're here today. If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer, and you are joining us as we are making our way through a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We have been looking at Mark and really Mark's primary question, which is, who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? We're actually almost there. Next week, we'll see Jesus ask that question directly to those who were closest to him, his disciples. He'll say, who do others say that I am? And they'll say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. They don't see him clearly yet. And they'll say, but who do you say that I am? And Peter will answer that question correctly. He'll say, you are the Christ, meaning you are God's sent Savior, God's King, the only way by which men can be saved and redeemed and secured. And we're not quite there yet, though. Mark hasn't answered that question. He's still building that tension, who is Jesus? And if you were here last week, you remember, you remember that Jesus actually asked another question of his disciples. He asked a question. He says, do you not yet understand? They're like the man whose sight is not quite healed. He's seeing men that look like trees. He says, do you not yet understand? Do you not see who I am? He he even says to them in our text last week, he says, you have eyes, but you don't see. And so here we do, here we are this morning, we have this text, which is an interesting text. It's a curious miracle. Maybe you, maybe you made a note of that as even Joshua was reading it for us. Um, uh, My wife and I were talking about this text this week. We were sitting in the hospital. Many of you know, my wife Sammy had her gallbladder out this week. And by the way, thank you for those of you who prayed for us. And so many of you have brought us meals this week. Uh, Some of you even had to say, hey, sorry, we have too many meals. Um, uh, Thanks. Thanks, though. We felt so loved and supported by this church. And so thank you for your care for us. But we were sitting in the hospital and I was working on this message while we were waiting. And and I just asked her, I said, hey, read, read this passage. And so she read it, and I said, hey, what, do you, what, do you come to, what comes to mind? Like, what's your initial impression of this text? And she said two things. First, she said, well, it's odd that Jesus uses spit. We'll talk about that in a minute. And she said, and maybe it's because she was in a hospital, and she had a failing organ in her body that needed to be healed. Uh, but she said, I think it's really interesting that it took Jesus two tries to heal this man. Like, I mean, could you imagine that? Like, you know, we find the greatest surgeon in the world, the most renowned surgeon, and he comes in and he says, okay, well, Sammy, how do you feel? And she said, I feel like I have, still have a half a gallbladder left. And he's like, oh, let me, let me try again. You know, like that, uh, that wouldn't be very comforting. So what's going on in this passage? It's a curious passage. It seems like it takes Jesus two tries to actually heal this blind man. There's more curiosities to this passage as well that, that are important if we're going to understand it. One is that this text, this miracle is only given to us in Mark's gospel which is curious. Why would we only have this miracle in Mark, especially for Matthew and Luke? You know, Matthew and Luke used Mark as kind of their source, right? Especially Matthew. Matthew took Mark's gospel and he fills in some color and some detail. Mark is just straight to the point. He doesn't give us even much of Jesus's words. He just gives us Jesus's essential actions and and works. And so Matthew comes along and he fills in some some detail. He gives us more of Jesus's discourses, more of Jesus's teachings, Um, but he omits this. Why? Why does he take it out? It's interesting. It's curious. Maybe does he not want some people to see that Jesus had what seems like a failed miracle? Maybe. I I don't know. It's, It's curious. Why is it here? Why does Mark give us this miracle and why does he give it to us where he gives it? Another curious thing about this text 
It's the only time that Jesus uh, performs a miracle and asks a question. It's the only time. Every other miracle of Jesus comes with a command, right? What does he say? He'll say, uh, get out. He'll say, rise, walk, take up your mat. It always comes with a command. Jesus's other miracles are about demonstrating his power, his power over nature, his authority over sickness, his authority over death and demons. Jesus is commanding, showing his authority, but he's doing something different here. He's asking a question. You know, other times when Jesus asks questions, he's typically trying to draw something out or he's trying to take people deeper. He often asks questions when he teaches and when he uses parables. And so why this miracle? Why does Mark give it to us? Why does Mark give it to us here? Well, here's what I think. I think that this miracle, though it really happened, though it, Jesus truly loved this man and felt compassion for this man, I think that this miracle was given to us by Jesus to be an acted parable. In other words, it, its primary purpose is to teach us. Jesus is trying to teach us something. It's, it's a bridge moment, if you will, that takes us from how people who are close to Jesus and around Jesus could not see him very clearly. They couldn't recognize him for who he is. But then yet, moments later, as we'll see next week, they see him so clearly. It's a bridge text. It's an enacted parable. It's meant to teach us how disciples go from not seeing and not understanding to seeing and trusting. And so I've got four things for us today. First, we're going to see why we need new eyes, and then we're going to see how Jesus cures. Let's pray, and we'll look back at the text. God, we ask that you would teach us today, that you would be our teacher as we look at, Lord Jesus, this miracle that you did in your life, that you would open our eyes as well, that you would open us to see, open our eyes to see you more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly, to see our need for you, our continual need for you. Open our eyes to see the gifts of your grace and what you give to us. And would you nourish us today? Would you strengthen our faith? Would you help us to see you, Jesus, and all of your patience and all of your kindness and all of your redeeming, healing love that is available to us? Teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. I've got four points today. Number one is that spiritual blindness runs deep and wide. We're all spiritually blind. I think this is one of the things that Jesus is wanting to teach us from this text. In the same way that this man is born blind, all of us come into this world with spiritual blindness. The struggle with spiritual blindness is real. And Mark has been trying to show us this going all the way back to chapter 3. This has been a running thread in Mark's gospel. He's shown us people who have been around Jesus. They've seen Jesus up front and uh, personal, but yet they still don't get it. Right, all the way back to chapter 3, it's his family, who very much knew, told by angels, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. Yet they didn't get it. In chapter 3, they're saying, he's out of his mind. Capture him. Bring him home. He's gone crazy. Why? Well, because he's not, the kind of, he's not acting like the kind of Savior, the kind of Messiah that they expected. He's not the kind of Christ that perhaps in their human understanding that they wanted. But it wasn't just his family. We see it from the Herodians. We've seen it from the scribes. We've seen it from the Pharisees. We've seen the spiritual blindness from his closest disciples. Spiritual blindness runs deep and it runs wide. Even in Jesus' day, Jesus was right there, but yet they couldn't see him. Right there, but yet they couldn't perceive what he was teaching and what he was doing. I want to define spiritual blindness for us. I think it will help. Pastor Josh talked about this a little bit last week. What, what is spiritual blindness? Well, in many ways, you could argue that spiritual blindness is the source of all of our struggles. 
Raise your hand if you struggle. <laughs> yeah, all right, good. Spiritual blindness is the source of all of our struggles. Um, maybe this might help. Uh, for all of us, I bet, there have been times in our life where we could look back at maybe a younger period and we could go, oh man, I was so blind, you know? Like those college years, golly, what was I thinking? Some of you teenagers in the room and 20 years from now, you'll look back now and you'll be like, what? Why did we bring the mullet back? What were we thinking? <laughs> you know, we were so blind. What, what, what was going on? Um, maybe you... Uh, have gotten to a, you got to a point in your life, maybe in adulthood, where you, where, you, where you realize, gosh, when I was young, I thought my parents were so dumb. <laughs> and now I've realized, like, oh, they knew what they were talking about, right? We've all had moments like that where our eyes have been opened and we've realized I was a bit blinded. So we can kind of understand this, this theme of blindness. But what about spiritual blindness when it comes to God? I think there's three aspects of spiritual blindness. If you're taking notes, I, want, I think it's important that we understand this. First, to be spiritually blind or to struggle with spiritual blindness means that we have an inability to see God for who he is. We have an inability to not only see God for who he is, but to believe God for all things. It's like the disciples that Pastor Josh walked us through last week, right? They're in the boat with Jesus. Jesus has just done these two miraculous uh, feedings where he's multiplied bread to feed thousands and then there's baskets left over. And yet they get in the boat and they're on to the next journey. And the disciples are going, oh no, nobody packed bread. What are we going to eat? And Jesus is like, I'm right here. <laughs> You're blind. Like, I'm right here. Do you not see me? Do you not know that I'm with you in all things? We often live our life with like these blinders on and we struggle and we wonder and we're anxious and we're worried and we're trying to make our own way. And yet God is right there. God is with us. But spiritual blindness blinds us to see God and to believe that he's with us in all things. There's a second facet to spiritual blindness. It's also not only our inability to see God, but it's our inability to see ourselves. We're blinded to ourselves, to who we really are. Paul David Tripp once said that our own self-perception is about as accurate as one of those circus mirrors. You know what I'm talking about? Like you stand in front of it and it might make you look kind of tubby, or then you stand in front of the next one and it makes you look kind of wavy. He says, that's about how accurate your own self-perception is. Even in the day and age where we're really into self-awareness and we talk about emotional intelligence and some people geek out on the Enneagram because it helps them better understand themselves, right? Even with all of those tools, we still don't see ourselves correctly because we are spiritually blind. I've, I've said this before. Oftentimes, our, the, we don't see our own sin. Uh, uh, sin in our life is often like sticky notes that are on our back. You remember middle school? Remember middle school when people would put the sticky note on, on, on the back and everybody else would see it, where it said, like, kick me or whatever it is? Everybody else would see it but you? That's often what our sin is like. It's like sticky notes on our back. Everybody else sees us, can see it. Certainly God sees even what others can't see, but yet we are often blinded to who we really are. And so we, we, can, be, we can be blinded to God and his presence. We can be blinded to ourselves and our own sin and insufficiencies. But there's one more element of spiritual blindness that I think is important for our passage today. It's, it's also being blind to our inability and our inadequacy to save our own lives. This is a big one in our world today. We, we kind of live in a culture where there's this, what I'll call it Peloton spirituality. I was riding our Peloton bike yesterday. All I wanted to do was just get a 10-mile ride in and work out on a Saturday and the Peloton instructor was just preaching to me like this, 
this godless spirituality that is so common in our day today. You, you know what I'm talking about. My Pel- I'm just trying to ride my bike, and the Peloton instructor is, is like, you got this, dig deeper. You're the source of your own happiness. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just trying to ride. And, and then she's talking, she's, some of you are struggling and having a hard time today, and, and says something about less regrets, more memories, just push forward and avoid your troubles and your sorrows. We live in such a world where this, this godless spirituality that we believe that the salvation that we need, the source, the strength that we need, the redemption that we need can be found within ourselves. It reminds me of a time when I was eight or nine years old. Uh, my family, we went to, um, we went to uh, Prince Psalms Park in New Braunfels. Anybody ever been there? That's where the city tube shoot is. The, the Comal River City tube shoot. I just, my kids are fired up over there. We just went there. I just took them there. When I was eight or nine years old, I loved going to this place. Um, it's, a, it's a really cool spot in the Comal River where you can pay the city park for a wristband and you can get in, grab a tube, and you can jump in and kind of float down the river for a while. And then you hit this super cool tube chute and it's really fast and it shoots you through. And then you can float down a little bit longer and then you can get out and walk back up and just do it again over and over and over and over again. Uh, I think it was a lot cheaper than Schlitterbahn, so my parents took us there. Um, and so I remember when I was eight or nine, I, I remember uh, that my parents always made me wear a life jacket because this tube chute is pretty strong. And there had actually been several people still to this day that, that drowned there. Um, you, I've heard that you can go there at any moment with some scuba gear and you can you know, scuba under the water and you can find phones and uh, wallets and gold jewelry and all kinds of stuff because this tube chute is powerful. People flip out of it all the time. And the current is strong. And my parents used to always make me wear a life jacket. And, and as an eight or nine-year-old, I remember telling them, arguing with them, I don't need a life jacket. I'm a strong swimmer. I can do it. If I flip out of my tube, I'll be fine. I'm a strong swimmer. I'm nine years old. I can save myself. I got this. And so for some reason, my parents let me not wear a life jacket. Um, all right, give it a try, big boy. You know, it's kind of their, their thought, I guess. And I come down this tube chute first time without a life jacket, and guess what happens? Tube flips, current, strong, pulls me under. I'm using all of my strength, all of my might, because I'm a strong swimmer, and I'm trying to swim to the top. By the way, I told my kids this story to make them put on a life jacket when we took them <laughs> last week, uh, a couple weeks ago. I'm swimming with all of my might, all of my strength, trying to get to the top. I remember feeling like, I think I'm going to drown, like as an eight or nine-year-old. I remember that feeling, like starting to get breathless, starting to get tired, swimming, 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 but then the current would pull me back under. And I finally get to the top, and I get, and I get there just long enough to kind of take one more breath, and I see my dad and my brother in their tubes. They didn't flip further ahead of me, just kind of peacefully floating, back down, you know, floating down. And I glance out of my peripheral this way, and I remember seeing the lifeguards, and it seemed like they weren't paying attention. And, and I remember thinking, this is it. I think I'm about to die. I mean, it really, really felt this way. It pulled me back under again, and I'm trying to swim to the top, getting breathless again. I don't have the strength to make it back up there again. The undertow is too powerful. And I remember thinking in that moment, maybe I'm not as strong of a swimmer as I thought. Maybe this is what the Bible means when it says, honor your father and mother, and you will live long in the land. <laughs> like, maybe this is what I was talking about. I remember, I remember thinking, I'm not as strong as I thought. Maybe I should have listened. And then, thank God, all of a sudden, something from outside of myself grabs me and pulls me out of the water. And a lifeguard literally saved my life that day. There are so many people in our world and in our culture today that are like the eight-year-old 
that are trying to swim, trying to make their way through the currents of life, the undertow, the pool, life in a broken world, life in a world of sin and death, life um, as people who are broken, who are insecure, who need mending, who need healing, and they're trying to do it all in their own strength, and they are spiritually blinded. Maybe it's you, spiritually blinded to the fact that you actually need something from outside of you to save you. You see, spiritual blindness runs deep in us. I bet there are some of you who are here today that, that, that really believe that in your own strength, you can escape your way out of hardships and sorrows. You can just avoid it, and you can just move on and turn the page. And it doesn't work that way. There are some of you that perhaps think in your own strength, you can earn your way, you can prove it and earn your way to peace and some measure of significance. It doesn't work that way. Maybe you think that you can accumulate your way through possessions and experiences to satisfaction and joy, but yet your heart is never content. You see, our spiritual blindness makes us act like an eight-year-old who thinks they can swim their way through the Kumal tube chute. And it's not just an individual level. We are spiritually blind in this way. We are blinded to our inability to save ourselves societally. I mean, our society right now in the West, we prob- it's, it's just in bold. Like our spiritual blindness is in bold. I heard somebody say one time, you don't cure diabetes with sugar. And that's like what our problem in our world today, like our world is so broken and we're confused. We, we, we are so aware of our brokenness as a society. We, we are troubled politically, economically, environmentally. We know that we have issues and we have problems. We are more confused than ever as a society on God's good gifts of sex and gender and sexuality. We're so confused about that. But yet we think that within ourselves, we can fix our own problems. It's like trying to cure diabetes with sugar. We're blind. We're spiritually blind to our need for something, someone, God in his grace and mercy, something from outside of us to save us, to open our eyes. Point number one, spiritual blindness is everywhere. It runs deep. It runs wide. We are all spiritually blind. Only something from outside of us can save us. Only something greater than us can open our eyes. And thankfully, Jesus shows up, right? For God so loved us, for God so loved you, that he sent his only son, not to condemn you, John says in 317, but to save you. Thankfully, God in his grace sent light to shine into our darkness. He sent the one that Isaiah chapter 35 talks about, the ransomed Savior who would open the eyes of the blind through his own suffering and death. Thankfully, Jesus showed up just as he did this day in Bethsaida. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Look back at the text. We're all spiritually blind, point number one. Point number two, only in Jesus will we find healing. Only in Jesus will our eyes be opened They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. Um, It is without a doubt, you can be certain of this, that this man would have tried every other path to healing throughout his lifetime. Like any medication that would have been available, any modern-day, ancient-day doctor that would have been available, any other prophet or miracle worker, Messiah-type figure, he would have tried all other options, but yet here he is, still blind, but because Jesus shows up, because Jesus, uh, you know, it's not like Jesus had a, a tour schedule out there published where people knew where he was going. Jesus 
by his sheer grace, shows up in this man's life and he opens his eyes. Only in Jesus, he finds his sight. It's a gift that he receives by faith. And so it is with us. Jesus is the only one who can cure our spiritual blindness. When we look at Jesus, that's why Mark's gospel is so important, is that as we open it and read it, it forces us to look at Jesus, the real Jesus, not the Jesus that uh, maybe you, uh, you're from your childhood and your upbringing that was kind of forged in your mind, not Jesus from uh, weird Christians uh, that, you, um, that you maybe knew growing up, not that Jesus, the real Jesus. When we look at the real Jesus, we start to see more clearly. We start to see God more clearly, and our spiritual blindness clears up. We start to see ourselves more clearly as we look at the beautiful, perfect life of Jesus. We start to see ourselves a bit differently, and our spiritual blindness clears up as we look at the work of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his giving of his spirit, his life-giving spirit, we start to think about our feeble attempts at self-saving a bit differently, and our blindness starts to clear up. Only Jesus can cure our spiritual blindness. But it requires that we get desperate for him to touch us. I love this about the text. The man is desperate for Jesus' touch. It's clear that he's tried many other ways, And he's like, Jesus has come. I've heard about your power. I've heard about the many miracles that you've done. They beg him, Jesus, will you touch touch him? And Jesus is willing to do so. I also love verse 23. It tells us that Jesus takes the blind man by the hand and he leads him out of the village. There's something beautiful about that that you should ponder. Kind of like when you read a parable of Jesus, you need to ponder it a bit. Something beautiful about that. Jesus gets him away from the noise of everyday life. Jesus takes him into the quiet spaces to do a renewing, redeeming, eye-opening work in his life. There's something beautiful about that. He's not trying to make a public spectacle out of this miracle. Remember, it's not to demonstrate his power. He's already done that. It's to teach. It's about personal transformation. It's only through coming into contact with this patient and loving and present Jesus that we see. There's no other name by which we can be saved, no other person that can take away the stains of our past, no other power that can transform a life from the inside out. Only Jesus can open our eyes. But here's the fun part of the text. It doesn't happen all at once. This is where it gets interesting. Point number three, spiritual blindness is healed in stages. Spiritual blindness gets healed in stages. Look back at the text in verse 23. It says that he spit on his eyes. Now, this was one of my wife's curiosities. That's weird. Uh, That might seem weird to us. But in in the ancient world, I want you to understand that this wasn't maybe as strange as it might seem to us. There was a belief that there were healing powers in saliva. Um, What Jesus is doing here when he spits on the man's eyes would be about the equivalent of of us like putting a Band-Aid on a Bobo. You know, like, like, does it really do anything? I don't know, but it makes us feel better, you know? Um, It's a very basic, uh, simple, unimpressive thing that Jesus does here. In fact, um, it's well documented that the Romans had a tradition that before they would take medication, they would spit three times, and then take whatever medication they're going to take. By spitting three times, it would like warm up or activate the curing power in the saliva before they took the medicine. And so Jesus is doing something similar with that. It's kind of a modern custom of the day. So he spits on his eyes, and he lays his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up, and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. 
interesting. Um, why don't you just imagine this for a moment? Imagine, try, try to put yourself in the shoes of this man. Um, imagine your eyes are starting to be open for the first time. You, you don't know what trees look like, but you have a good idea because you felt a tree, you've been around a tree, you've sat under the shade of the tree. You, you know that there are people around because you hear them talking and moving and walking. Jesus' disciples are there. This man's friends are there. We'll get to them in a minute. And so your, your, your eyes are starting to be, suddenly your eyes are starting to open. You're, you're seeing something, but you can't quite make it out. And then Jesus, in the middle of this, asks you, he says, what do you see? Oh, no. What's happening? What do I say? Am I honest? Am I honest with Jesus? Or do, 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 or do I pretend I'm okay? Do I just pretend, yeah, yeah, Jesus, it worked. You know, good, great, good, good job, Thanks. Imagine the emotion. Did, did I not have enough faith here to get the full healing? I know that he was able to heal other people, but maybe, maybe there's something just you know, more wrong with me. Maybe I'm, I'm more problematic and Jesus doesn't have the power to deal with my afflictions and my ailment, my blindness. But what does the man do? He chooses honesty over pretending. He says, I can see your disciples but they aren't in focus. They look like walking trees. Verse 25. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I want you to know that this is the primary point of this miracle lesson. This is the primary point. That it takes time. It takes multiple touches but eventually, because of Jesus, we will see, and we will see clearly. We will see with glory. I want you to know that the, the, in the original language, the word that gets translated here into our Bible as clearly, the Greek word, it's the same word that we get our English word telescope from. It's telagos. It's the same word that we get our word telescope it's to see in a far-reaching, in a bright-shining way. Think about a telescope. He's like he sees with 4K crystal vision, seen gloriously like he's never seen before. He sees deep and he sees wide. And that's the point that Jesus is, is making here, that though it might take time and though it might take multiple touches, that Jesus is patient with us and with our spiritual blindness, and that a day will come when we will see with glory. Isn't that beautiful? But it doesn't happen all at once. I love this miracle. I'm so glad that Mark has given it to us because it reminds me of the Christian life. It reminds me of what my journey with Jesus has been like, probably yours too. This slow, kind of growing in Christ-likeness, trusting Jesus more, but then I'm struggling with sin and unbelief and maybe even some doubt sprinkled in there. But then maybe Jesus touches me again and my eyes open a little more clearly and a little more clearly. I'm so grateful that we have this miracle. Do you see what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here? I think he's saying very clearly to Peter and to James and to John and to the others, you are in process. You're not seeing me clearly. You don't yet understand, but you will. And I'm totally okay with that. And I'm patient with you. You need multiple touches of my grace. You need multiple lessons from me. 
and I won't withhold my grace, and I will remain patient with you. Donald English, a commentator, says about this passage, he says, the undeniable lesson of this little miracle is that the God of all history, the Ancient of Days, seems to take his time with us. And he doesn't mind. He does it for reasons of his own, and we must remind ourselves that it's primarily because he loves us. I love this miracle. I'm so glad that Mark gave us this miracle because I believe it is a more realistic picture of the Christian life than what most of us uh, think our Christian life should look like. Um, I don't think it's any accident. I think I actually find it really beautiful that Jesus chooses to take them to Bethsaida to perform this miracle. You know who was born there? You know whose hometown that is? Peter. It's Peter's hometown. Um, Many of us think that our Christian life should look like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> if you know the story of the Bible, Paul's story was um, he was blinded by Jesus. Suddenly, his eyes are opened and his life is radically changed. His past is buried and he just is on this rocket fuel trajectory of like becoming like Jesus, bold like Jesus, on mission for Jesus. The Apostle Paul, and we think, that's what the Christian life should look like. There might be 1% of you in this room that has a story like that. And praise God for that. But the rest of us, our story is more like Peter. We need to let Peter be the reminder and the example of what the Christian life is really like. Many of us, our story is not like the Apostle Paul. It's like Jesus did meet us and he did bury our past and he did make us a new creation. And that's theologically true. But then we you know, start to follow him and live the Christian life and it feels like we get pulled back into our past and back into old patterns and we need more touches of his grace. We need more healing. We need more transformation, slowly but surely over time. For many of us, the journey is more like Peter who... And the next text will confess, you are the Christ with bold faith. And then moments later, the fickleness of his heart will show and Jesus will rebuke him and will say, get behind me, Satan. He needs multiple touches of Jesus' grace. Many of us are like Peter, faithful on Sunday and foolish on Monday. Many of us are like Peter, passionate about Jesus in one moment and then denying him in the next moment. Most of us are more like Peter, whose spiritual blindness was cleared up in stages as Jesus was patient with him, as Jesus kept calling him back into truth and meeting him with grace. And so it is with us. Isn't this good news? That Jesus is patient with you, even this morning. He's saying, what do you see? Do you need another touch? Maybe some of you are at a place today where you need a second or third or 15th or 90th touch from Jesus, from his healing hands. Will you hear that he is patient with you? Will you be honest with him? Maybe he's saying to you this morning, what do you see? And you're saying, I don't know. I feel like I'm seeing men that look more like trees. I'm not seeing Jesus clearly. I've fallen back into sinful patterns of my past. I'm feeling the pull of temptation. I'm not seeing clearly Jesus. Would you touch me again? Would you be honest with him in confession? Maybe some of you, I haven't, you know that you haven't honored your spouse. You haven't played the role of a husband or a wife that you should be playing and that you need another touch of Jesus. You're not seeing him clearly. Maybe others of you aren't seeing him clearly. Your affections for him have grown cold and you know that you're, you've kind of gotten distracted and you've, you've been pulled over here and you're um, occupied with the things of the world and you need another touch from Jesus. I want you to know that he is willing when we come to him. 
He heals our spiritual blindness in stages over time through honest confession as we stay in close proximity to him and to his church and receive his means of grace. He opens our eyes, cures our spiritual blindness. So we're all spiritually blind. Jesus is the only one who can open our eyes. We're cured in stages. And finally, point number four, our spiritual blindness gets cleared up in community. Look back at verse 22. This is subtle. It's, it's, it's kind of, could be, you know, you could say this is kind of hidden in the text. Maybe some of you will say, hey, that's a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, that's all right. I'm going to go for it. Um, spiritual blindness is healed in community. This is true. It's true. I want you to think about verse 22. This man had friends who carried him to Jesus. This man had friends who could see when he could not see. There's a lesson here about the power of Christian community. I want you to know that you need friends in your life who will carry you to Jesus when you are spiritually blind, when you are falling back into unbelief, when your passion for Jesus in one moment turns to unbelief in the next moment. You need Christian community. Friends who will see for you on your day of doubt, on your day of darkness. Friends who will point you to the truth, who will point out the sticky notes on your back because they love you. Most importantly, you need friends who will take you to Jesus, even if they have to carry you there. You need friends who will say, hey, it's been several weeks, I haven't seen you on Sundays. You know, we, we need to worship together. We can't forsake the gathering. We need to uh, have our eyes opened to who Jesus is. We need to worship him and receive his means of grace. You need friends in your life who, will, who know you enough to know when you're struggling, to know when you're doubting. We need friends that we can talk to. I want to ask you, do you have friends like this? Do you have friends that take you to Jesus, point you to Jesus, even carry you to Jesus if you need them to do so? If you don't, get them. I want you to know that that is such an important heartbeat of this church. It's what we call gospel communities. And gospel communities have been difficult over the last two years as we've navigated a pandemic and all the things. But as we head into this fall, we are praying that God would renew a spirit of disciple making in our gospel communities where we truly would be these kinds of friends for one another that point one another to Jesus. Do you have friends like that? Are you that kind of friend for others? We need community. Christian community helps us cure our spiritual blindness. We're all spiritually blind. Only Jesus can heal us, and he cures us in stages. He cures us in community. I want to close with this. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on this text, he points out that Jesus gives us an enacted parable. In other words, a miracle that's meant to teach. At the end here, this text is the end of part one of Mark's gospel, and then we get another one at the end of part two of Mark's gospel. And Lloyd-Jones points out that this, uh, this miracle that Jesus does in Mark chapter 15 uh, is also a two-stage miracle. Lloyd-Jones says that he gives us this miracle in Mark 15, 33 through 39. And in Mark 15, 33 through 39, here, let me just read it for us. Listen to what, this is Jesus' day of death. Listen to, to, to this, this miracle moment. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here we see another miracle, this enacted parable. Um, something that shouldn't happen is happening. In the same way that Jesus touches and opens eyes, there's this nature miracle where darkness is covering the earth at noon. What's going on? What's it meant to teach us? What's it trying to teach us? Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And so here, still at this moment, even in Jesus's death on the cross, there are people who see men that look like trees walking. Do you see that? They, maybe, maybe he's calling Elijah. They still don't see him clearly. They still don't see what he's doing and what he's accomplishing, even though that there's, uh, the darkness is covering the land. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last breath. And here's the second stage of the miracle. The curtain of the temple was torn from two from top to bottom. Wow. And when the centurion who, was, who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last breath. So he breathes his last breath, he dies, and the curtain is torn in two. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. He sees clearly. Isn't that a beautiful? You know what clears up spiritual blindness? Gazing at this Jesus. Gazing at the one, the very son of God who so loved you that he was plunged into darkness for you the true light of the world plunged into darkness so that you could be healed of your spiritual blindness, so that your eyes could be opened, so that you could see with glorious sight the curtain torn in two, his body being torn, his blood being poured out so that you could approach God with confidence, even with all of your ailments and wounds and past. God could touch you, God could heal you, God could redeem you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what cure spiritual blindness, fixing our eyes on that Jesus, seeing God clearly through that Jesus, seeing ourselves clearly through that Jesus, seeing our world and the needs of our world clearly through that Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on him. As the, the, the old hymn says, let us look full into his glorious face. Let's pray together. God, we do confess that we are prone to blindness. And we thank you that you are a patient redeemer. We thank you that you, Jesus, have come, given of your own life, so that we might see. And as we move into a moment of response now, as we take communion together, as we pray, as we praise, Holy Spirit, we pray, God, that you would pull us deeper and deeper into your presence, that you would lift us up out of the current that pulls us, the current of self-sufficiency, the lies of this world, and that you would pull us up, rescue us even in this moment into your mercies. Would you stir up our faith? Would you nourish our faith? Would you open our eyes? Would you renew our spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.